So what we dream at night tells us a lot about what we worry about in a day. What we dream at night tells us what we worry about in a day. And one of my recurring nightmares is that I dreamt that I was back in my school days and I had to sit for the exam. And in such dreams, I could see the faces of my classmates, both real and imaginary. I could see the street where I had to walk on my way to school. I could see the apartment which I rented near my school and even the little restaurants where I had to buy the cheap student meals. And interestingly, normally in my dreams, the exam topic was not difficult. But because I did not have time to study for the paper, eventually I failed. So in my dreams, failure was inevitable. So you can tell by now that I hate tests. In fact, 20 years have passed since my undergraduate days, but the echoes of the trauma of exams carry on in my days and my dreams today. So it's a very interesting experience when I joined the other side of the table, when I became a lecturer in the Polytechnic. And as a teacher, I learned that no matter how much the students hate tests, tests are important. It's like in the current pandemic, because a person could be having the virus, but with no symptoms, you need to have swab test to determine the person is really sick or not. So similarly, for school, you can't tell whether the student has understood the topic being taught until the only way is to put them all to a test. And so in today's passage, we read the account of one of the greatest tests ever placed upon a man. It is a famous account and yet also an often misunderstood one, because famous enough to inspire the faith of billions, but infamous enough to cause people to drop out in their belief. And sometimes it caused people to perform things that led to tragic consequences. So I hope that we can take a good look at today's passage and its context to understand the content of the test and what it takes to pass to test. And so the passage begins with the phrase, sometime later, God tested Abraham in verse 1. And so the test given to Abraham was the accumulation of a series of events over a long period of time. And it all started 25 years ago when God first called Abraham to leave his family. And according to Joshua chapter 24, and read over here, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So in other words, God took Abraham from a family who worshipped idols, national gods of the land they lived in, to teach him how to worship Yahweh, the Lord, the true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth. And part of Abraham's worship was to leave all that was familiar with him to journey to a new land by faith with his descendants will inherit one day. And his descendants will one day become a great nation and bless all the other families on earth. So all this sounded really great, really great, until you realized that not only the land was occupied by many powerful kings, Abraham was already 75 years old and childless, and his wife was barren. So how on earth, how on earth could this man ever conquer a land? 
and have children to inherit it. Yet God confirmed His promises again and again with Abraham multiple times, saying that His descendants, this old man's descendants, will be as many as the dust on the earth and as uncountable as the stars in the sky. So very soon, Abraham learned that worshipping Yahweh, the Lord, is very different from worshipping the other gods that he grew up with. See, the other gods, they required rituals. They required techniques and offerings to negotiate with them, like a transaction. But with the Lord, the creator of heaven and the earth, Abraham was only required to do one thing, and that is to trust. To trust that God will keep his promises even though Abraham did nothing to deserve those promises. And so in Genesis 15, verse 6, as we recall, this is what we read. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. So all God wanted Abraham to do was to realize that by his human strength, he could never obtain the land, nor his offspring. So he had to keep trusting in God. And 25 years since the promise was first given, Against all odds, Abraham's old wife, Sarah, bore him a son. And at a joyous occasion, they named the boy Isaac, which means laughter. And so we read over here, in Genesis 21, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yes, I have borne him a son in his old age. And just as he thought that 25 years of walking by faith and with the miraculous birth of Isaac, Abraham's faith would have been certified genuine. But no, God has one more final test for him in today's passage. And as I mentioned earlier, being a lecturer, it helped me see the importance of tests. And sometimes, you see, because after giving a lecture, the students will come to me and thank me for the lecture that they understood the concept. I thought I did a great job until we had tutorials. And during the tutorials, the same students would stare at me blankly and they tell me that they can't do the exercises. And then I had to train them. And then we had practicals. And the same students who did the tutorials at the lecture would stare at me blankly. They, can un they were unable to apply the knowledge in the experiments of the lab. So the teacher's job never ends. And then after months of hard work and a final test, the results showed that not all the students were able to grasp the lessons taught. And like the saying goes, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And so the real test takes place when? When we send out the children, the students, out for the internships. And that's where the knowledge in their head will be truly tested in real-life situations. And those who perform well enough they will have a job waiting for them before their graduation. And those who did badly, they will send back to school even before the internship ends. So what did I learn? I learned that from lecture to tutorials, from practicals to internship, it's a long journey. Because it's a difference between academic knowledge and practical knowledge. And similarly in our lives, there's a difference between knowing the truth and walking in the truth. For Abraham, there's a difference between knowing the promises of God and walking with God who made those promises. And sometimes it takes a long journey and one final test to find out for sure 
whether we have simplistically understood the truth or whether we are walking in the truth. So for Abraham, during his walk for 25 years, he took multiple tests. And so let, let's look at his test slip results, what we call the PSLE result of Abraham. Why PSLE? It's because it's the praising and serving the Lord examinations. So Abraham took the exam in about 1800 BC, his school of hard knocks and grace. And then what were the modules that he took? The first test was protecting your wife from kings, and he failed. Then he had to rescue his nephew from the warlords. He passed. And then he had to listen to God and not your wife. And he failed. Then he had to show hospitality to strangers. He passed. And then praying for your nephew and for Sodom and Gomorrah. He passed. And lastly, he had to repeat the module, rotating your wife from kings. And he failed. So, at times he passed with flying colours. At times he failed miserably. And so now in chapter 22, is the final test to see he fully trusted in the Lord or not. And what is the test? And we come to today's passage. It says here, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then the Lord said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. On a mountain, I will show you. The very offspring that Abraham waited for 25 years was now to be sacrificed back to God as a burnt offering. So how did Abraham fare? If you turn to your Bible, from verses 3 to 4, we read that Abraham did not hesitate. He did not debate with God. He rose early in the morning. He made all the preparations. He settled the donkey. He took two young servants to him and carried the logistics and he personally cut the wood piece by piece required for the burning of his son. And then the hundred-year-old man, he journeyed on foot with his son Isaac and his servants for three days, a three-day journey to the mountain that God had told him about. We can imagine that how each step he took was filled with tiredness in his feet, and each step he took filled his heart with pain, and filled his mind with anxiety. From every step taken, he was proving his seriousness to obey God. But at the same time, every step that he took, he also meant drawing nearer to the dreadful moment of sacrifice. So in verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, and this is what he said. He told them, stay here with the donkey, while I and a boy go over there to the mountain. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Did we read wrongly? Did Abraham really say that the boy will return safely? Was he expressing faith in God? Or was he hiding the real reason for the journey from his servants? And then in verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And the name of the boy which meant laughter. At this moment, there was no more laughter. In his hands, Abraham took the flame, the fire, for lighting up the wood. And in the other hand, he took a knife for cutting up the boy. And together with Isaac, he went up to the place. By now, Isaac was no longer a toddler, but a young boy. And so his curious mind asked, he said, Daddy, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? It's indeed strange. It's like going for a family camping 
bringing all the gear for a barbecue, but not bringing any meat along. And so there's no hiding from a boy. Abraham had to give a good answer. But in his mind, it was a turmoil. On the one hand, God confirmed with him many times that Isaac was the one. He's the offspring that through whom all blessings will flow for the entire world. And in the last 25 years, God promised and kept his promises again and again. But now, God wanted him to sacrifice Isaac. And that will be as good as cancelling God's promise. And so Abraham was brought to the brink of his faith. Will he obey God? How will God resolve the situation? And at this point, Abraham's faith was hinted in how he replied to the boy in verse 8. He said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And with this answer given, no more questions were asked by the boy. And so from verses 9 to 10, we continue reading, the father and the son arrived at the place and Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood properly. Then he bound his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. If this were a movie scene, we can imagine Abraham would be closing his eyes. If this were a movie scene, I would be closing my eyes. I can't bear to watch what happens next as the tension becomes unbearable. But then just at verse 11, we read, a voice called out excitedly from heaven, the voice of an angel, Abraham, Abraham. And pausing his hand in mid-air, Abraham said, here I am. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. At this point, Abraham heaved a sigh of relief. And so would we. Abraham passed the test and his son was spared. So before we continue, we need to examine in great detail what exactly was the test that God gave Abraham. What exactly was God looking for in Abraham? And I read here, it says here, Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. To fear God. God wanted to test if Abraham feared him. But what does it mean to fear him? To fear God is to acknowledge the existence of God as the centre, the ruler of the entire universe and that life revolves around Him. And as a result, because life around, revolves around God, we have to obey God, whatever He commands. Faith is not simply knowledge about God gained during a lecture, like our sermon. Faith is the knowledge of God applied in real life when you walk out from this hall. And we apply our faith as obedience to God's commands. So let me ask you a question. How do you know whether a durian tree is a good tree or a bad one? And the number one person in this hall will understand this, this Pastor Jeff. You see, we know by tasting the fruit of the tree. A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. So just as a tree is known by its fruit, genuine faith within us is perceived through the deeds that are issued from our faith. 
So previously, despite being old and unable to have children, Abraham believed. And so God credited to him in righteousness. But this faith was something within Abraham. We can't see it until Abraham acted out in a way to express this faith. And that is the purpose of today's test. Now that God has given Abraham the boy Isaac, despite his old age, will Abraham be willing to give him back to God? Will Abraham continue to trust that somehow God will keep his promises of giving his descendants through Isaac, even though Isaac would die as a burnt offering? And that is what we read in Hebrews chapter 11. It says here, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God has said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And that's what we discussed. And Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So when Abraham acted in obedience, tying up the boy and getting ready to plunge the knife, his action revealed the genuineness of his faith in God. And similarly, in James chapter 2, you foolish person, do you know, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our God Abraham considered righteous for what he did? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And by his faith, was, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. And you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And so, as the story showed us, that the works of obedience of Abraham, when he offered up his son, proved the genuineness of his faith within him. Abraham's faith was made complete by what he did. He trusted that God would see to his promises, and somehow Isaac would be spared. So, you see, my friends, Abraham passed the test, not because he's powerful, not because he's strong, not because Abraham could perform miracles and raise his son from the dead. Abraham passed the test because he trusted in the Lord. He trusted that God would keep his promises, and God did. And so we read in verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So what is the lesson about faith we can learn from here so far? The lesson of faith is this. Abraham passed the test because he believed God will fulfill the requirement of the test. It's interesting, isn't it? Abraham passed because he believed that it is God who will pass the test on his behalf. And after the test has proven the genuineness of Abraham's faith, God now repeated his covenants with him. And it says here, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven 
to a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. So these promises sound familiar because God had already given twice. And so now God triple confirmed. He chopped, he signed and put his thumbprint. He swears by himself. Why? Because there's no one higher than God. So to show his seriousness, God swears only by himself. And God's oath to Abraham is in two parts. The first part we saw, that his descendants will be uncountable. And the second part is this. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of the enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Abraham's descendants will overcome the enemies. But one singular, particular descendant, the offspring, will be a great blessing to the whole world. So how then do we apply this passage? So on May 2003 in Texas, 39-year-old Deanna Laney, she took a big rock from her garden and she hit it on the heads of her three young sons. Two older boys, aged eight and six, died immediately. And a 15-month-old son survived with severe injuries. And then she called 911 and confessed her crime. Why did she do that? CNN reported that Deanna believed that God had told her the world was coming to an end and she had to get her house in order, which included the killing of her sons. And in the quest to get closer to God, according to the defence lawyer, Deanna faced a terrible dilemma for her mother. Does she follow what she believes to be God's will? Or does she turn back on God? But she did what she did. Why? Because she believed, she was so sure that her children will rise again from the dead. Later on, she was examined by five mental health experts and they all concluded that she was suffering from psychotic delusions, unable to tell right from wrong. Friends, intuitively, we know that this is not the way to apply today's Bible passage. And let me put this on record. God will never ask you to sacrifice your children or even your mother-in-law as an offering to Him. But how are we so sure about this? How can we know this from the Bible? And so one way for us is to see, as a standalone incident, this test of Abraham can be misinterpreted in many different ways. And to understand it properly, we need to see the context of the incident. So let us zoom up and see how it all began. See, firstly, God called Abraham to leave his home to a land promised to descendants. God also chose Abraham and promised him one particular offspring. And this was recorded in Genesis 12 and 15. And the last time I checked, God did not promise me a land the size of Israel. And the last time I checked, I looked at my male offspring. He's cute, but I don't think he's the one who will bless the whole world. So clearly, I cannot simplistically equate myself with Abraham. And I can't say that this test is something that I have to do. And secondly, other than Abraham, no other human believer 
was called to do this by God in the entire Bible. And in fact, by the time we reached Leviticus chapter 20, child sacrifice was already outlawed in Israel. So clearly this was an extremely unique event in the history of God's relationship with mankind. Not something to be repeated, not something for us to imitate. But to know the full meaning of this event, we need to see where this account fits into the entire Bible. So let's zoom up even more. This all begins, as we all know, when Adam and Eve sinned against God in Genesis chapter 3, when they rebelled against His rule and they wanted to be gods themselves. So mankind turned evil and the world was filled with great violence. And so God brought a flood to destroy humanity and He graciously spared one small family, Noah and his family. And in thankfulness, Noah then offered God a burnt offering of clean animals. A burnt offering, if it sounds familiar. And the aroma of the offering pleased the Lord. And so God made a covenant not to destroy the whole humanity again, despite the evil in our human hearts. And this evilness continued to manifest itself when the descendants of Noah built the Tower of Babel to climb up to heavens, to glorify themselves, to make themselves equal of God. So God scattered mankind and then into different nations with different languages. And so the big question is this, how can God avoid destroying humanity? How can He not destroy humanity despite the evilness in our human hearts? What is God's solution to this divine dilemma? And so we catch a glimpse in today's passage. So when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as what? As a burnt offering, then we should immediately think of the burnt offering which Noah offered after the flood. And so the burnt offering of the animals that turns away God's wrath will tell us a hint that why God wanted this. And just as Abraham was offering his son at Moriah, God stopped him and provided a ram in Isaac's place. This should make us realize that God himself will see to it to keep the promises. God is saying that one day, he himself will provide a male sacrifice, a male lamb, a perfect sacrifice to turn away from his wrath, his anger against our human sin. And when we follow this thread across the whole Bible, we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, that the same region of Moriah, Solomon built a temple for God. And every year, as Israel celebrated the Day of Atonement at the temple, a day when animal was sacrificed for the sins of Israel, on that day, what the Jews will read, will reread the account of Abraham binding Isaac again. And this is what they say. They'll read this. Remember in our favour, O Lord our God, the oath He has sworn to our father Abraham on Mount Moriah, considering the binding of his son Isaac upon the altar when he suppressed his love in order to do your will with the whole heart. So to the Jewish mindset, they already knew that somehow the link between Abraham offering Isaac to the whole sacrifice of the animals in the temple of Moriah. But of course we know 
from reading the Bible, that the blood of animals could not clean the hearts of the Israelites. They remained evil and they kept turning away from God at the earliest opportunity. So finally, about 1,800 years later, after the binding of Isaac, an offspring of Abraham was born miraculously, this time through a virgin birth. And this descendant grew up to be the Israelite, the only Israelite who had no sin. And his name was Jesus, the Son of God. And like Isaac, Jesus carried the wood upon himself, which he would be a sacrifice. And like Isaac, Jesus submitted perfectly to his Father's will, like a lamb to a slaughter. However, unlike Isaac, Jesus was not spared. He was nailed to the wood and died on the cross. Jesus' death was the perfect lamb that God promised to provide, to pay for the sins of the world. His death on the cross was not a sacrifice demanded by some bloodthirsty pagan god. His sacrifice was the result of a God who loves us, who has planned since the beginning of time to save us at His very own cost. Which is why we read in John 3.16, the famous verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So from the binding of Isaac all the way to the cross of Jesus, 1,800 years, the dynamics of faith are clearly illustrated for us. Abraham was old and dead in his body. He passed the test because he believed that God would fulfill the requirements of the test. As for us, we who are dead in our sins, unable to save ourselves, we too will pass the test of righteousness when we believe it is God who fulfills the requirements of righteousness. Through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, God provided the ram that we too, by faith, by belief, we will be credited with righteousness. And three days after his death, Jesus rose from the dead and his resurrection vindicated to the whole world that he was the promised one, the promised offspring, the one whose death would take away our sin. And once we understand this, we can see the whole salvation plan is a one-time incident with God sacrificing his son. And therefore, we are not called to imitate Abraham by offering our children to God. Instead, this is what we are called to do. So therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and pleasing and perfect will. So in view of what God has done for us on the cross, He doesn't want dead sacrifices. Dead worshippers cannot please God. It doesn't make sense. Instead, God wants us to be a living sacrifice, to no longer be conformed to the world, to stop rebelling against Him 
and to live with God as the centre of our lives and of the universe. And so that means we have to be sacrificial in our lifestyle, to no longer love ourselves selfishly, but to love others sincerely and deeply, even our enemies. Therefore, true faith, my friends, always expresses itself in works of costly obedience. Because true faith requires living sacrifice. God wants costly obedience. So before I was a lecturer, I actually was working in the civil service. And to say at least, I started out as a misfit. I didn't fit in the corporate culture, nor the work itself. So even HR then was very worried when they saw the results of my personality test. I was outlying data. And I wanted out. But here lies the problem. I was a slave. I had a five-year bond. So very frequently at night in my room, I would plead to God to deliver me from my slavery and bring me to my promised land, wherever that was. And one day, with two years left in my bond, I chatted with a school director of a polytechnic. And I was offered a job. I was so excited because teaching was something I enjoyed. And it's a useful skill to pick up. I told myself, yeah, now you want to serve God overseas in mission, you pick up teaching. And so I went back to the office and informed my boss about my decision. And guess what? He did not allow me to transfer the two years left of my bond to the school. Although technically it was possible. So to say the least, I was both furious and disappointed. Then one colleague of mine who has been mentoring me as a Christian, he simply told me this as he sat me down. He said, Lak Yong, now you can go up to HR now and kick a fuss. But now that you are a Christian, think of how non-Christians would think of God if you were to do this. And your boss is a non-Christian. So here lies my great divine dilemma. Do I insist on my rights or do I submit to my boss? All that I have learned in church about submission is just theory so far. Will I really obey God? And the truth of the matter is, I was more interested about my own personal happiness than about God's glory. So I made up my mind and then went to tell my boss that I would not leave but stay. And I also gave him a blank check to reassign me to whatever new portfolio he wanted to assign me to. And then I called the polytechnic and turned down the offer. And sometime later, I found the director of the school who offered me a job also left the polytechnic. So the door was closed forever. Or so it seemed. You see, my civil service boss assigned me to a new portfolio to develop the computer games industry in Singapore. And I don't play games. And for the next two years, I worked hard at it. I tried to do my best to learn and I tried to bless the best whoever I work with. And amazingly, I changed. God helped me to like my new work and helped me to fit in with my new team. And some of them even lasting friendships. And more amazingly, two years later, the same polytechnic started a new department, a new diploma course on developing computer games. And because I had given my boss a blank check 
Now with my experience in the games industry, the door was kept open for me. And so that's how I became a lecturer. And that's how I come to sit on the other side of the table and torture my students with tests. But looking back, I was really ashamed of my attitude during my first few years when I started working. And looking back, I was amazed at God's grace. He gave me good things that I don't even deserve. But most importantly, I'm amazed at how God changed me through the power of His Word and through the Holy Spirit. And by the end of my time with the, with the civil service, I did my personality test again and I really, really changed. So what did I learn? I learned that God did not need me to make plans for His mission. He wanted first and foremost for me to be a living sacrifice, to trust Him wholeheartedly first, and to bless those He has placed in my life. And so my friends, we are all called to be living sacrifices, like how Abraham had to be tested to prove the genuineness of his faith. We too will be tested as part of our journey of growth as Christians, which is why the Apostle Peter wrote this. In all this you greatly rejoice as in the salvation that you have. Though for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, and these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And no matter how hard our tests are, God Himself will provide, just as how He provided for Abraham. He will provide for us the ram. He will help us to meet the requirements of the test. He Himself will give us the strength to obey. And He Himself will help us to become living sacrifices. And as time goes on, with all the tests that we picked up, every one of us will have one final test. And that's the test of facing death. On that day, we will find ourselves dead in our bodies with no more strength left. No one to walk with us. Complete darkness and silence. Will you trust that the Lord will be on the other side to return you from the dead? Just as how His Son, Jesus Christ, returned from the dead. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the God, the Father, sacrificing His Son, His one and only Son, the Son whom He loves, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be afraid of the tests in your life, but rejoice in the proven genuineness of your faith. And only then will you be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will for you and for the whole world. And that, my friends, is how we apply today's passage. Let us go to God in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. We thank you for keeping your promises to save us and not condemn us despite our sins and despite our lack of faith. And by your faithfulness, help us grow in our faith and help us be genuine, proven genuine in our faith.
by how you helped Abraham. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.